What's going on, guys? This is Rob Doster here. I want to let you know about our sponsors, Anchor by Spotify. If you haven't heard about them yet, it is the easiest way for you to make a podcast. I know because all of our 28 podcasts on the field of 68 and the field of 12 use Anchor by Spotify. It has the tools that will allow you to record and edit your pods right from your phone or your computer. You can distribute anywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all those places that allow you to listen to podcasts for absolutely free. Anchor sends those pods directly to the feeds. And here's the best part about it. Anchor is totally free. So make sure you download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm if you want to get started on your own podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Doster, T.O. and Fanta Podcast. It is Tuesday morning, October 5th. We are precisely five weeks away from the start of college basketball season. My name is Rob Doster. With me, I have Terrence Oglesby, the Clemson. I guess we can call him a legend, maybe, maybe not. And we have John Fanta, who is unquestionably a Seton Hall legend. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Great. Five weeks. Can't come quick enough. We're getting closer. Yep. I mean, this is our version of starting to think about the Thanksgiving dinner. What's the table going to look like? Get the trimmings ready to go. Who's making the turkey? Who's hosting the party? This is such a fun time of year, gentlemen. Yes, it is a time of year when we hear from the coaches about how this player is about to be the best in the country. He's going to be the most improved player in the country. And last week I had someone on Twitter say to me, uh, because Travis Steele said his Xavier Musketeers, he believes they could win the Big East. The person's like, I want real answers, real interviews with real answers. You know what, buddy? Just be glad that you're about to be back in the stands at a college basketball game. Who cares what the answers are right now? This is a time to make the hot take, to make the big claim. College basketball is that car that is just about to merge around the corner. I was about to say it's it's best uh, best shape of his life season right now. It's guys have been uh, spent all summer in the gym season right now. A thousand shots a day season right now. <laughs> That's exactly yeah, what exactly. I mean, T, T, what do you think of when you hear when you hear these statements? I can't believe that anybody said uh, we need realistic answers back to a head coach. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's what this part of the season's about. I, I'm getting drilled for picking NC State twelfth, like. Okay, fine. We'll see if Keats can get something done. But I mean, that's what this part of the year is for. I mean, so much uh, to look forward to so many good players this year, uh, especially Fanta. You've hinted on it the past couple of weeks that we've done this podcast. This is going to be the best year of college basketball that we've had in the last 50 years from an energy perspective, from an old guy perspective, a couple of hot takes here and there never hurt anybody. Plus, I think there's a strong possibility that a lot of them can come true. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You mentioned NC State and the fact that their fans are crazy. That is a great tease for something that we have coming uh, later in the podcast. But we're going to start it off with this. Um, I have three questions that I laid out today, three topics that are just kind of evergreen stuff that I really want to pick your brains about. So we're going to start with this one. Fanta, what is the one storyline heading into college basketball this season that you are the most interested in seeing play out? I'm intrigued to see the conference where it just means more and how that plays out, the Southeastern Conference. I'm going to go down to the SEC here because you have a Kentucky program that's coming off of an uncharacteristically bad year, a historically bad season. So what happens with their transfer additions? Kellen Grady looks like a player 
who should really add a lot, has had great coaching. We talked about that last week. Oscar Sheepway as well, and the Wildcats bring in the recruits that they have. Some steady pieces back. John Calipari needs to bounce back. The most intriguing player in the Southeastern Conference is not a Kentucky Wildcat, in my opinion. The most intriguing player in the Southeastern Conference is Kennedy Chandler. I am really, really fascinated to see what happens with Tennessee. I think that the Vols have some interesting players. They're going to be a team that can space the floor well. I like them as well and and their makeup. Let's continue. Alabama. You're talking about Jaden Shackelford. You're talking about a program that went to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 2004. Nate Oates has things running and rolling again. And while the Tide did lose some key pieces, man, I'll miss Herb Jones. The Tide are still a great defensive team. Their metrics last year, they took a jump, guys, from 124th in the country the year before to third. Their defense was fantastic. That's going to translate here again this season. And, oh, by the way, the Musbus in Arkansas have things in a really, really good spot. And Arkansas is the team that people, I think, respect now but don't even fully know how good that they could be. The SEC is in for a big-time conference schedule, and I am deeply intrigued by the Southeastern Conference. That was going to be one of my points, too, of this year. Is the SEC the best conference in college basketball? We've always known that the SEC is a football conference, but there's been so many schools that have heavily invested when it comes to coaching staffs, when it comes to facilities, when it comes to practice, all this thing, all these things. And it has turned out really well. In my opinion, the SEC has nine teams that could make the NCAA tournament. It is murderer's row every single night in the SEC. And you may, and, and you said it, Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, obviously is going to be good. But how about Florida who bring in two transfers that were defensive players of the year in their conference? Auburn might have the best front court in the entire conference. Mississippi State bring in Shaquille Moore, Rocky Watts, Garrison Brooks, Tolu Smith returns after being one of the best rebounding teams, not only in the SEC, but the country. The SEC, from top to bottom this season, is the best conference in college basketball. It's interesting that you say that because I don't necessarily disagree. I think that it's as deep as any conference in the country. Um, and I think that the the league play is just going to be a, a you know a complete meat grinder. Um, but I don't know if there's necessarily a national title favorite in that conference, right? Like the the best team is is who Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Do they have an All American on their team? Who's going to play the point guard? Do we know how Kellen Grady and CJ Frederick are going to fit into this roster? Uh, is is Coach Cal going to play two bigs at the same time? There's question marks there. Arkansas. Are they how, how are things going to operate when you have five foot seven and Chris Likes, a, a shoot first point guard running the show, right? There's question marks there. Uh, Alabama, you mentioned their defense, Fanta. Well, they lose Herb Jones. And, and I don't know what that defense is going to be without a guy as good as Herb Jones. Uh, Tennessee is, is basically trusting in a freshman point guard. And, and I, look, I love Kennedy Chandler. Freshman point guards are freshman point guards. There's a reason why they're freshmen. Um, you know, there's, there's questions with Auburn. So it, it's – there's a lot of teams that have a lot of things that they have to figure out, but I do think that we're going to have so many good basketball games in that league. And look, Arkansas just got a five-star commit. Uh, Alabama just got a five-star commit. Will Wade's never going to stop recruiting, right? Uh, John Calipari, the, the, that league is only trending upward. And uh, Tio, I, I do have one little beef with what you said. You did not mention Flanders Fleming by name at Florida. 
We shall yeah, never speak Fleming about Florida. Flanders, right, hold on. First of all, Flanders Fleming Jr. How dare you disrespect <laughs> that man's father? So, no, he, he's fantastic. Two-time Big South Player of the Year. He's got good length. He shoots it well enough. Florida's going to be really good. I, I just – there's so many defensive weapons there, not to mention Colin Castleton's coming back, who was yes. the first-team all-defensive team member for the SEC last year. Florida's going to be good. Are they going to be able to score enough is the biggest question. But they are old for the first time, I think, in the past three or four years. They've been in the bottom 20 in the country in terms of age and experience and playing time. Uh, from season to season over the past few years, Mike White got sick of all the rookie mistakes. He brought in a bunch of old guys. And Florida should be pretty good, and they'll benefit because of it. Yeah, I actually just did a, an interview with Mike White for our, um, our our season preview series. And one of the things that I did ask him was, you know, you, you have all of this uh, – you felt follow Billy Donovan, right? Florida is a school that has all of these expectations when it comes to any, not just basketball, but any sport. And mm. here you are, and like you've had, I mean, he hasn't had bad results, right? Like he's been to the tournament. I think it's uh, four out of his six years, and it would be five if the, the 2020 tournament didn't get erased. Um, he's never finished below like 500 in the league, but there's only really been one year where they made a run in the tournament. And there's only really been one year where they were kind of in that conversation for SEC championships. And um, I was like, do you, do you kind of feel that, that pressure at all? And he's like, well, I think it's kind of unfair that there is any pressure at all. Like, the thing people forget about Florida, and, and I feel like this never gets talked about enough, they lost their best player last season, four games into the year, with mm-hmm. something that, frankly, would be pretty traumatic for anybody to see for a teammate happen. So um, I'm very, very intrigued to see what this kind of like rebooted Florida team is going to end up looking like. Because I thought that last year was their year, right? Last year was supposed to be their year. Yeah, yeah. but the one thing I think is, is nine new players on that roster. I think that's the count. I mean, it's quite a few. With that many new faces, how does this all shake out? I think that Mike White is a, is an underrated coach. And, you know, it's it's tough because you do expect down in Florida, the expectation is to be at the top of the SEC, and uh, they, they have to get back there. I think that that's the most fascinating thing about this conference this year. And sometimes the best conference doesn't have the national championship two or three contenders that you want. I do think, though, this is where I disagree with you, Rob. I think that just because at this stage of the year, we don't think that there's a Southeastern Conference National Championship contender or two, doesn't mean we might not find out that there is one by the time January or February rolls around. It's a marathon of a season. There's a lot of new faces in this league. We have to see the kind of coaching that that results in this conference. I, I think that what's really interesting is when was the last time that we're talking about Kentucky basketball not being the king or at least right near the throne in the SEC. And we could be talking about that again this year if the Wildcats don't put it together. And the reason why I say that is not because of Kentucky. It's because there is an immense amount of pressure around them, pressure that they have not felt before in the SEC. These schools are gunning for that SEC title. Now there's a belief factor there's a there's a factor of they can get big-time five-star recruits as well. And you've got coaches, Nate Oates at Bama, Eric Musselman at Arkansas. The fact that Rick Barnes is in the league speaks for itself. That can be right there. So who's who's got the most pressure on them heading into this year? It is without question the Kentucky Wildcats. How severe Wheeler going to work out? I'm really interested to see what he does. And I think that just because we're not talking national championship with the, the, the SEC now – 
it is the deepest conference in the country. And in the regular season, that provides for some amazing midweek conference and some amazing Saturday games. Yeah, you mentioned pressure pressure on Kentucky and, and Coach Cal. I do think that this is the first time there's, there's ever actually been real pressure on him to try to find a way to succeed and find a way to win. I mean, you can't you can't have the year that Kentucky had last year in that state, in that basketball program, and not have people start saying, well, okay, well, why is this happening this way? And look, a lot of that had to do – a lot of what happened with Kentucky had to do with some of the situations around COVID and around the regulations and around not – Had everything to do with it. Yeah, had everything, everything to do with, do with it. it. Um, but it's still, the results – are the results. And I don't think that uh, that can be overlooked. So this is the first time there's been real pressure on coach Cal, but I will say this. I think that pressure is part of the reason why we saw a little bit of an uptick in Kentucky's recruiting over the last couple of years. T.O. put a ball in the SEC for us. Put put a what? Sorry. Put a ball, put a ball on it. Put a ball on this conversation. Put a ball on it. No, I, I just think it's a fantastic conference from top to bottom. And the fact that all these coaches are so stinking good, uh, I, I will say this about Kentucky, having these old guys, and I, I feel like I harp on old dudes all the time. I, 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 I talk about it all the time every time we're on the podcast. But the fact that they didn't get to implement their culture the year before, like we've talked about Cal not being a big X's and O's guy. That's true. Somebody argued with you. It's true. He's not a huge X's and O's guy, but he is a huge culture guy. He is a huge little things guy. Two hands on a rebound. You've heard him say it. If you watch any of Kentucky's practices on all these things they do online or on television with ESPN, like you have to establish those little things. Not having that summer is huge. And I think Kentucky, uh, by the time all said and done, I I think a Final Four is possible. But I will caution SEC fans. I will say it's the deepest conference, and I still think it's the best conference thus far. Uh, They might beat each other up, and you might not have a number one seat. Hey. Big Ten, man. I mean, it, Big Ten last year beats each other up. We're, the whole season, Big Ten's the best conference. Big Ten's the best conference. This is the best league in the country yep. all season long. It don't mean nothing if 80% of your league is out by Friday of the NCAA tournament. Yep. It, it doesn't. Sometimes it's okay to have a league where you only get four teams in if the four teams are really good. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say to push back on that, Fanta, is – that yes, you're right that the, the there it was a little bit overrated by the time things all kind of shook out. And I do think the fact that there were so many teams that were kind of in that like 30 to 50 range really bumps up all their computer numbers, which is why you saw so many teams get into the tournament, even though there were a lot of kind of, I think it's fair to say, fairly mediocre teams kind of in the middle of that league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think part of the reason why we didn't see as many teams make a deep run from the Big Ten is one, Illinois ran into the worst possible matchup they could have had where they they ran into a team that did nothing but dribble handoffs, nothing but ball screens, and ran an offense that was specifically designed around pulling a five-man away from the basket. And you know what? Loyal is really good. And two, I think that the conversation surrounding Michigan and UCLA's run to the Final Four is very different if there is a healthy Isaiah Livers for the Wolverines once uh, everything is all said and done. But, all right, let's move on to the next topic. But before we get into a quick conversation about All-Americans, let me tell you guys a little bit about our partners over at Bet River Sportsbook. If you haven't signed up with Bet Rivers yet, now is the time because they are offering a $250 match bonus for your first deposit. But what sets them apart is they require just one playthrough to turn your bonus into cash money with their rush with their new rush pay instant approval withdrawing your winnings is safer more secure and more reliable and with basketball season just around the corner there's never been a better time to get in on the action by going to betrivers.com today or by downloading the bet rivers 
iOS app. You must be 21 years or older. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Gentlemen, last week we did our preseason All-American live show. We all made our picks. Uh, I don't want to kind of relive the full All-American teams. What I want from both of you guys is your hottest hot take when it comes to first team All-Americans and how you think this is going to play out. T.O., I'm sending it to you first. I think there's a, a hot take. It, it doesn't really pertain to the five that we picked last week, but I think it's entirely possible that you have a first team All-American team without a single transfer. In the year of the transfers, most of your best players stick around. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I don't have a whole lot of information to back that up. I didn't fan to that whole thing. I probably need to be better about it. But if you look at it, Bancaro, Timmy, uh, Coburn, uh, Hunter Dickinson, there's a lot of guys that stuck it out. And a lot of times your best players are guys that stick it out and stick with you for a long time. That narrative is going to end up changing. But I think for the time being, it's impo- entirely possible that the guys that stuck around, that could make up your first five. Fancy, do you see what he just did there? T.O. found another way to compliment old guys in college basketball. He did. <laughs> and you know what? I- I'm going to compliment being a big man myself <laughs> in different, yeah. different capacities. The big man in top basketball. You just brought those games. We might have an All-American first team with just one guard on it. What? What is this? Well, here it is. It's the year of the host presence, and we've got a lot of them. We've got some versatile ones, but you bring up Timmy. You bring up Ben Caro. Uh, you brought up Dickinson. And E.J. Liddell is certainly expects to be a guy. And Kofi Coburn, to me, is going to be a first-team All-American. I have an All-American sleeper, not not for the first team, not one of my five best players, but a guy that I think could land on the AP All-America, even the third team. I would consider this to be an accomplishment. I, I just love this kid's game. And it kind of goes along with T.O.'s take here the last couple of weeks. Keve Aluma. How dare you? That's a no-brainer. Keve Aluma. Yeah, he, would, he would disqualify out of the transfer marketplace, but I was actually going to follow you up and say, hey, I, I have two sleeper ACC picks that could be uh, maybe not first or second team. I have Aluma on third, but I also have Isaiah Wong at Miami. He mm-hmm. leads the league in scoring. He puts Miami in that five, six, seven range, which is entirely possible. Miami's been talented for the past few years. They haven't been able to stay healthy. I mean, they have been talented from top to bottom. This year, if they can stay healthy, Isaiah Wong could average 22 points a game in the ACC and be a second or third team All-American. It's entirely possible. I think you guys overlooked the the best ACC sleeper when it comes to an All-American. And this guy who probably shouldn't be a sleeper, seeing as he used to be a five-star recruit at one point in his career, and that is Caleb Love at North Carolina. One thing that we've learned over the years, from that North Carolina basketball program is that the best players on that team are the shoot first high volume lead guards that can get out and transition that know how to hit ahead and know how to create in the half court, whether it is a Joel Berry, whether it is a Marcus page, whether it is a, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on uh Kobe, whether it's someone like a Kobe white, whether it's someone like a Ray Felton, that is what you need in that Roy Williams secondary break offense. I fully expect Hubert Davis to run something very, very similar. And I also fully expect Caleb Love to take a step forward this season. We already talked a little bit about the impact 
that that the, the COVID offseason had on some of the freshmen, I think that probably took a toll on Caleb Love. When you're a point guard and you're a freshman and you're being asked to do the job that North Carolina point guards have to do, it's really hard to do that without a normal offseason. We're going to have a full offseason for Caleb Love. The big question with him was shooting. Well, over the course of his last six games, he hit 13 for 34 from three. If you go and you listen to any of the coach speak in the offseason, yeah, he got up a thousand jump shots. In the, uh, that, that's going to be the most improved part of his game. Uh, but I do think that he's going to come in this season. He's going to have a really, really big impact. And I expect him to be the guy that kind of leads the North Carolina resurgence under Hubert Davis. And I fully expect him to be in that mix for a preseason or for a postseason All-American team even if he's not a preseason All-American. T.O., real quick, I want to touch back on the SEC because on our show, you had Javon Quinterly as a preseason first-team All-American. Let us know why. I mean, he over the from February on, he scored in double figures every game, and he was the SEC tournament MVP. And he gets wherever he wants to with the ball in his hands. And now that Herb Jones is gone, Alabama still filled to the brim with shooters. They've got guys everywhere and his ability to get where he wants with the ball is second to none. I'm not just talking about in the conference, but in the country, he's shifty, he's fast, he's strong enough to hold guys off. He's a really good player. And I said, you know, it took him three or four months. Well, Goodman came back and said, well, it took him three or four years to kind of find himself and find the way he's supposed to play in the college game. He's was fantastic from February on. He's Goodman said he talked to Nate Oates. He said he was doing a great job of, of making all the right decisions. And he's got guys around him, Jalen Shackerford. They've got shooters all over the map. And he can be a guy that really he could average, you know, six to, anywhere between six and eight assists if he plays the right way because of the style and manner in which Alabama likes to play. Jelly fam's back, right, Fanna? No. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Um, I'm not sure about that. Can I, I want to bring something up uh, because I was kind of like, you guys remember the old school tag team WWE Friday Night Smackdown matches when the partner is waiting here in the corner to tag to then get in and start making something happen. I wanted to Robbie Hummel to tag me in last week when he was going at Goodman for kind of being two-sided on the – I believe he was talking about Juzang or Hakez and how just an NCAA tournament run doesn't equate to full season because it was kind of those two guys versus a, um, a Max Aismas. So, I, like, I, I, I look at that, I think it's the opposite. I mean, you, you look at those two players, what Hakez and Juzang did on that run, and I know an All-American type season is a full season, but I think those guys are going to be ready to just spring ahead. I, I do think that a month-long run like that is going to spring them confidence-wise, feel-wise, everything into this upcoming season. So uh, those guys are going to land on the All-American list. And, and, and I think that another guy, I'm really intrigued to see Marcus Carr and what kind of season he puts up. I just realized doing some research on Texas – do people realize that they have seven players who averaged in double figures last year? Yeah. Holy cow. I mean, that, we need to talk about that team, and we have to a degree, but, man, a team that could seriously win the national championship. Yeah, they're they're very, very, very good and very deep, and I think that their front line is probably the best part of their roster. It's really intriguing, especially if some of these guys like Dylan Disu can get, end up uh, – can end up getting healthy. Um, you mentioned Jaime Hawkins and, and, and Johnny Juzang. I personally have Jaime as the first team All-American out of those two. But, I mean, that 
I don't know if there's a better one-two punch in college basketball, especially on the perimeter than those two guys. I do want to wrap up the combo with this, though. I think it's interesting that in a year where – or in an era where the one-and-dones are always the biggest topic of conversation, that we've gotten this far in a conversation about All-Americans. We haven't mentioned Paolo Bancaro. We haven't mentioned Chet Holmgren. We haven't mentioned Amani Bates. We haven't mentioned Jalen Duren. There are a lot of really talented freshmen, but it feels like some of them are kind of getting overlooked. Is that just the situation of, you know, Chet's on the same team as Drew Timmy and Imani and Jalen are on a team where we don't exactly know how it's all going to play out because they reclassed. And the biggest storyline about Duke season is going to be the fact that Coach K's last year, not the fact that Paolo Bancaro is there. Fanta, why don't you take that first? Yeah, I have more doubts on Memphis than I have certainty, so that's why I'm not putting any of those kids in that position. We need to see them prove it. Uh, We need to see this coaching staff prove that they can string it together and get connected on the offensive side of the basketball. Chet Holmgren, I do think, is a result of Drew Timmy being on Gonzaga, but maybe we should twist it. Maybe we should twist it. And the twist that I would bring to it is I think Drew Timmy's going to garner a ton of defensive attention. And Drew Timmy might actually have a worse year than he did last year because of the amount of attention that he takes. Who could benefit from that? Chet Holmgren. Chet Holmgren could really benefit from that. I'm not saying that Drew Timmy's going to have some sort of big drop in production this season and not be a similar player. But look, teams are going to scout like hell to try to keep him from from being the one to beat them. So I do think it's a result of, you know what? This is the year of Terrence Oglesby. This is the year of getting old and staying old. And that's the Mike Bray phrase. Experience wins in this sport. And we kind of have taken time to trend back towards this. But when you look at who's on that ladder at the end of the season, in recent years it has not been the one-and-done players that carry the sexy factor. It's been the guys who have stuck around, and we're talking about college basketball All-Americans. We are not talking about NBA draft lottery picks. I think that's the biggest part. I'm with you, Fanta, when it comes to uncertainty in Memphis. I mean, they haven't really been able to put it together, and I have some reservations about Bates and how he's going to adjust when he has to play Wichita State. And he only weighs about a buck 80. I mean, I think that's going to be significant. There's going to be an adjustment process. And not to mention – Memphis is loaded. They have so many different scoring options. And Penny talked about it a little bit with Goodman in his interview. Like, there's not going to be a whole lot of 40-point games from some of these guys because they have Lester Kianas. They have uh, Landers Nolly. They have Jalen Duran. They have Imani Bates. There's a lot of guys that can have 20-point nights on a given night. There's not going to be that one guy that they go to because there are so many weapons. So I think that has a lot to do with people not picking uh, Imani Bates, of course, I think he's when, when the AP comes out, I'm sure he'll get plenty of votes and he may even get on the first team. But I think because they are so loaded with talent, I think it's going to be hard for their stats to be uh, extraordinary. The, the one point I do want to make about Imani Bates is that uh, for most of, the, most of the time when like these guys reclassify, it's players moving back up into the normal grade that they're supposed to be in, right? They're, they're someone that was going to be a 19-year-old freshman. They reclassify. They're going to be an 18-year-old freshman. Imani Bates is actually 17 years old. He's so young that he is not going to be eligible for the NBA draft until 2023. He has to do – he's a two and done. He has no choice. He, well, he's a two and through. He has no choice. So um, I do want to make sure that we kind of temper expectations a little bit because that dude has had, I mean, there's been too much that have been thrown on him 
um, over the course of expectations. When you're 15 years old and you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated and you don't immediately become the greatest player in the history of all time, then people are going to start calling you a failure. So I want to make sure that we kind of limit what the expectations are for Amani because, you know, if he averages 15 points a game, 15 points, four assists, and Memphis is a top 15 team in college basketball, he was a success as a 17-year-old freshman. Now, I want to make sure that that's very, very clear for people to understand. Let me tell you something. I'm not looking at any of his individual numbers. If his team is top 15 in the country, it means that he did something right. There are yep. a, lot of, a lot of players who put up a lot of stats on bad teams. You know, that's yep. not an All-American to me. That's that's, And I, I think I want to make that very clear. We see teams sometimes try to build on some players' candidacy. you got to win games. I mean, you, you have got to be a part of a winning equation. Averaging 21 points per game on an NIT team is not something that I'm interested in. Yep, I think winning is the most important stat when it comes to All-Americans and, and uh, end-of-the-year awards. All right, we'll get into another conversation in a second, but I just wanted to let you guys know really quick about Field of 12 Media. It is a brand-new podcast and digital media network covering college football by the people that know it best. Brought to you by Shoot Your Shot Productions, the people behind the Field of 68. The Field of 12 gives you insight into the game we all love by the people that have lived it. Trevor Knight and Bryce Petty are covering the Big 12. Josh Perry and Christian Hackenberg are covering the Big Ten. We have Max Starks and Clint Sterner on the SEC. We have Harry Douglas and T.O.'s guy, Cody Sensabaugh, covering the ACC. Um, And, of course, we have Yogi Roth, Ted Robinson, and Michael Molinari, the best Pac-12 broadcast crew covering the Pac-12. So make sure you check the links below and, uh, and find the rest of the shows because the Field of 12 is where college football happens. Fancy, you got your hand up. What's going on? I've got an upset. I've got an upset special here this week. I know this is the field of 12, but you might as well pass along the field of 12. This is the week that the Red River Showdown. Hook them horns, baby. I've got Memphis on Saturday. (laughs) If you take down Oklahoma, give me the Longhorns. I like the way they're playing. I like the way Sark's coaching. I like the Longhorns. Them not letting down in a letdown spot at TCU. Impress me. I like their defense. Oklahoma, give me the horns on Saturday. Can't trust the Sooners. I'm with you. All right, last segment we got here. Uh, I'm actually stealing this from um, from Matt Norlander and Gary Parrish's uh, Candid Coaches series. I thought it was a really interesting question, and I wanted to discuss it a little bit. Will name, image, and likeness – let me try that again. Will name, image, and likeness legislation increase or decrease cheating in college sports? T.L., why don't you start? There was a quote in that Norlander story. It's totally relevant to how sport actually operates. It's a morality deal. You can't legislate it. I think that's a huge portion of this entire thing. And look, I mean, it's inescapable at this point. And somebody in the story said it's legalized cheating. If it's legalized, it's not cheating. Like that's kind of the whole thing right now. Like I think it relieves a lot of pressure off the NCAA obviously, for obvious reasons. But the problem that you're running into is, is people are saying, well, and people are saying, like, if I were at Kentucky, arbitrary situation, I haven't heard anything, full disclaimer here. But number eight, nine, ten is going to make more money than, say, at Ole Miss in Oxford in a much smaller demogra- much smaller demographic, for example. So, I think that's kind of where you get into the weeds where it could be uh, difficult to kind of navigate. But 
when it comes to is there more or less cheating, guys are going to cheat and guys are not going to cheat. It's a morality case. It's not necessarily uh, this is how we want to do it. I, I just I think this is overblown. I think NIL is be, water always finds its level. I think guys are getting overpaid. If I'm going to be honest, there's not going to be a whole lot of deals where a guy's going to make a million dollars to be the third string quarterback at Ohio State. There's no return on investment. It's stupid for businesses to do such a thing. So I, I wonder how long these guys are going to get paid these massive amounts of dollars. I think it's going to I think it's going to fall off. But as far as uh, is there more or less cheating, guys are going to always find ways because there's so much at stake. I could not agree more with you. But I think that to answer the question, it is a a decrease in actual infraction cases and in cases of schools racking up violations and in the NCAA handing things down that they've taken their time on some of the cases that we've seen three, four, five years ago. I don't think that this is a situation with NIL where they're going to be knocking on schools' doors and going left and right and saying that they broke the law when we don't even know what the law exactly is. We don't even know what the legislation is, so how could you be cheating it? Right now, it's an open market. So as it stands now, the answer is decreased. Because if it is an open market and the legislation allows for that open market, that's going to enable more schools, student-athletes, and companies to work together on these deals in which the NCAA cannot say anything right now. So is that cheating? By definition, it's not. What this does is, to me, it allows schools that are not Kentucky, that are not Duke, that are not North Carolina, that are not Kansas, to explore options in which their student-athletes can benefit off their name, image, and likeness, ways that they could not legally do beforehand. We know for a fact that coaches have lured student-athletes, these kids, with different things behind the scenes that absolutely broke rules. Some of those coaches, some of those schools have gotten slap on the wrist. Some of those schools, some of those coaches have gotten massive penalties, case-by-case type of thing. When you don't have any prerequisite standard in how you hand down punishments to begin with when it was not an open market, how are we expecting that there's going to be a standard of punishment when we're in these times? The answer is decrease, and the answer is NIL was bound to happen. I think it's watered down now, and I I don't think it's made as big of an impact as everybody thought, and things are going to level out. It's a good thing for college athletes, but does it create massive cheating? No. I I think it all depends on what you technically define cheating as, right? That's the problem. Yes. That exact, that, that exact thing right there, what you just said. Because How do you define cheating? That's yeah. the biggest problem with the whole thing. Here's the thing. Technically, coaches and administrations and athletic departments are not allowed to have any, any, any hand in developing some of these relationships and any hand in securing some of these NIL deals. And if you think that that's what's actually happening, like every single one of these coaches are involved in this. Um, I also think, to your point, T.O., I don't think that water is going to necessarily find its level here because I don't think that these businesses are doing this in a way that they're trying to make it be, be profitable, right? Like, let's just say FedEx dropping a bag for Jalen Green and Amani Bates, whatever that ends up being, assuming that that's what's happening. They're not doing that because they're trying to make money off of that deal in the end. They're doing that because they want Memphis basketball to be good. So if they got to keep spending money to make sure that Memphis basketball is good, 
they're going to keep spending money. Phoenix has they have more money than to, to spend than anybody, right? So I, I, Oregon and Nike, how much money can they spend and and still be able to turn a profit? How how big is that slush fund for players, right? All of this stuff was happening before NIL was legal. If we're gonna, I mean, we're, we're adults here, right? We can have a grown up conversation about this. This is not the first time that players have actually been getting paid to go play college basketball. Um, so I, I think that that money is still going to exist because at the end of the day, it's all a vanity play, right? And even if this is uh, some booster cutting a check that they're saying is from FedEx or whatever it is, or they're saying is from Nike because they want to get this kid on a, a campus, I, I don't think that it's going anywhere because these guys were already paying money to make sure that their teams are good. That's what it is at the end of the day, right? It's guys with big bank accounts that love their college and that love their team and that want to see them do well. Now, some of them, like Spencer Rattler, for example, when you're the face of Oklahoma and uh, you look at some of the guys that were before him, whether it was Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and players of that ilk, those guys are going to keep getting big deals because they are the face of a sport. Um, I, I think that the consistency of the big deals are going to be probably be bigger for football. Um, but at the end of the day, especially, and here's the other thing on the basketball side, I think a lot of these deals get done to make sure that you have a relationship with that player when they become huge in the NBA, right? Part yeah. of the reason why why Nike is able to spend all of these the all of this money on on all of these different players, if you spend let's just say like a hundred thousand dollars on a hundred kids, right, that ends up being basically a ten million dollar investment. And if that if one of those one hundred players ends up being a Kyrie Irving or a James Harden or a Kevin Durant or a Damian Lillard or someone at that level that can really sell gear, you make your money back tenfold. That's that's what all of this is. It's like venture capital money, man. You just throw it out there, and you only need one thing to hit and you end up being profitable as a result. Yeah, it's kind of like, what I like in it too, is the television networks in their bids to secure live events. You know, ESPN takes the American League wildcard game, and they take it over and over and over and over and over again, and oh God, they've got the Rays and Blue Jays one year. Oh God, they've got the Astros in Cleveland another year. Oh, oh, this week they have the Red Sox and the Yankees? Okay, they just won the night in television. And what does that equate to? seven figures of money. So it is, it's, it's the capitalism approach. It's a, it's an investment on what can be. I also do think though, that, and, and I'm not pointing out any one apparel company, uh, but the fact is we know for a fact that apparel companies have already tried to strike these deals before NIL and have already tried to do things behind closed doors before NIL. So the relationships were already getting established to a degree um, but now they can publicly and now they can in the event that you have that, that Zion Williamson type of figure um, in, in college basketball, that Trey Young type of figure who takes the sport by storm and is on a college game day promo leading into a big Saturday and is all over television, that now when you're watching TV and a company has him on an ad, that ad campaign can take off. So that's, that is what they're betting on. Football is always going to be king, uh, but you're going to continue to see these certain brands look at the top programs, look at how much TV time they get, how much advertising they get, and now be able to do it again in an open market. The, the best point of this debate has been what you said, Rob. How do you define cheating? Mm-hmm. And I would kind of sit here and say that in the current times, cheating is undefined. Which is where the problem is. I, I, I like the the whole problem. It's a morality. I, I I'll never forget watching Christian Wilkins in the documentary. What was the documentary called? I can't remember what it was the called. Scheme, right? The scheme. The scheme. Like 
he had a quote in that he's like, Hey, let me just be clear from the beginning. Whoever pays these kids to play basketball is a good dude. That's what he said. Now, I, I don't know who he was referring to. I can't remember all that. But the fact that he's like, well, he's a good dude because he's helping out these families and everything like that. Well, the fact that a lot of people don't think like that, a lot of people do think like that, that's where the issue is. So it's, it's kind of a, there, there, there has to be something set in stone. But to think that these coaches, they wouldn't be doing their due diligence if they didn't find out what these kids could be getting in an NIL situation at their university. Like, so, and to think that, and to think that just because you hire a certain portion of the university to handle all these things, it's, it's, it's naive at best. It's stupid at worst. Oh, oh my God. I mean, that is just like, that was like a medium (laughs) rare steak. I I can't describe (laughs) how good that was because it's so true. The the coach, the, the best coaches in this sport are the ones who are able to make it work as the CEO of their program. Mm-hmm. Not for, for the X's and O's that John Calipari lacks, he makes up for in every way he sells his program. And part of selling your program is being progressive. Your front porch right now, what is the front porch of college athletics? It's NIL. It's name, image, and likeness. And every single day, a university is announcing that they're partnering with this company and they're partnering with that company to look progressive as if they're supporting NIL. It's all a facade. That company's role ends up potentially being with cross-country athletes, volleyball athletes, and soccer athletes. For the big sports and for the big brands, the head coach of that program absolutely plays a role in this. Deion Sanders just said it two months ago when a couple of his players Worked out an NIL deal. He openly admitted that he assisted in it. And did he get penalized by the NCAA? No, because the NCAA doesn't even have full knowledge of what all this means. Because guess what? Congress said, we don't want anything to do with this. And by the way, what you, what you are doing or what you are attempting to do for legislation is not legal. <laughs> That's cheating. That's cheating. NIL is an open market. Let the kids get their payday. And if I'm a coach, I'm trying to get every one of my kids an NIL deal. Is it cheating? F that. Yep, I love it. And it went hard. Hey, let me say this. That, I know that, that, I that was a hard F that, too. That was a yeah, hard it was a hard F that. Look, <laughs> I know I've struck gold whenever I see Fanta in the background. Just going <laughs> to be one of these double fist pumps. Then I know, like, I've hit something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love college athletics so much. and. There's people who get hired for these jobs. And I like, we're talking about jobs here. We're talking about a living. But on the NIL front, we're also talking about families. We're also, yeah. I talked with a kid a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to name him. He said that when his mother, he, he, has, he has a mom, he has a single parent home, a mom and three sisters. You know what he said to me? Got emotional. He goes, It means the world to me that growing up, I was the youngest brother, you know, youngest sibling. And I was kind of the one, they, they told me what to do. And I learned from them. He goes, it means the world to me that now they're, when they have a struggle, they call me and I'm able to provide that for them. Yeah. I mean, think about the, the reason why I've never, ever had an issue with kids taking money and never, ever had an issue with uh, players being paid and why I've always been pro NIL is you look at the overwhelming majority of the players that are, that are at this level, that are playing at this level, especially on the, like the, the basketball side, even the football side too. It's it's black kids from low income families. Like there's there's a very large percentage of those of, of those kids that that are that demographic. 
And for many of them, this is the most profitable time of their lives. And for many of them, the, they can't always wait until after their career is done to start making money on whatever it is, whether it's coaching, playing, whatever, like th- those four years, three years, whatever it is, there's a lot of families they could use even like even a couple hundred dollars can go a long way for a lot of families that need to make sure that they got the heat kept on. Like if they're, they're living in Chicago in the winter, making sure the heat stays on, that's a big deal. Right. So um, I've never had a problem with players finding a way to make money off of it. And on the football side, where you put your body through all that damage and you don't have an overseas market to go play in and you don't have the ability to kind of uh, work your way up from the G league and get where you want to be. It's either you make the NFL or you got to find something else to do. I have no problem with, with somebody at Ohio state. If you're a, if you're a, a offensive lineman at Ohio state and you find a way to get an NIL deal from a restaurant that wants you to come in and eat your meals there, just to say that they have a lineman from Ohio, like go, go get paid, man. You're putting your body through enough. Go, go get what you can. To expand on what you're saying, think about women's basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, UConn, Diana Taurasi, she would have been able to make some coin. Candace Parker, who is wildly famous now, if she was able to strike some of these NIL deals while she was in college, forget about it. I Paige mean, Bri- Becker, Brianna Stewart. That's thing Paige Beckers can make right now. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, it turns the whole thing on its head. And there's never a time in, in the current marketplace that we are in, I'm not saying anything that it's right, that it's wrong. They are never more marketable than when they are in college athletics. Exactly. Yes. Even after they go to the WNBA or they go to Turkey or Russia, wherever they pay all this big time money for female athletes. Like they are never more marketable than when they are in college athletics, especially on the female side to go along with what you're saying, Rob. Yeah. So go get your money while you can. I have no problem with it. All right. Let's end it with this. I do have one question that came in. It came in last week. We didn't have a chance to get to it. Uh, I want your list of the top five craziest fan bases in college basketball. There was a list that was put out uh, by, by one, uh, by one podcast's Twitter feed. Um, a lot of people got upset by it. Uh, if you looked at the fine print, it was written. It, it was, it said that it was from the South Harmon Institute of Technology Anybody that is a fan of the movie accepted. Anybody that is a Blake Lively fan should know what the South Harmon Institute of Technology is. I want to elaborate. No idea. Is what it is. But I want your lists of the top five craziest fan bases. Fanta, I'm going to you first. All right. No blue bloods in this because it doesn't count. I mean, they speak for themselves. They sell their own tickets. So I'm going off the map. First time I was ever in this building, I could not believe the fan base. It was almost cult-like. Um, but I was in shock and awe and thought they're going to win the game because of this fan base. And I'm going to go out to Ames. I'm going to go with Iowa State. I think Cyclone fans are fantastic. Hilton, yes, Hilton magic is real. Hilton magic is real. Fran Fraschilla told me so, and then I saw it in person, and it is, in fact, real. Iowa State, number one. Dayton, number two. Flyer fans travel well. Um, there's a reason why the first four is at UD Arena. You know why? They pack the place with mm-hmm. residents from the area, from the neighborhood. A lot of fan bases can't get out to UD Arena in two nights. It's, remember, the selection Sunday happens, and the first four starts 48 hours later. Guess why it works? Because the Dayton community embraces it. Number three, BYU. They're going to be a welcome addition to the Big 12. Wait until Kansas and Texas go out to Provo for a 9 o'clock Big Monday game. It's going to be insane. BYU fans are already great. They're crazy. They're number three for me. Number four, Wichita State. That that fan base is fantastic. They fill the place up. Another passionate fan base. 
And so for me, the Shockers have uh, have my number four. And then number five, totally off the radar, mid-major style. I went to the uh, I went to Hartford to cover the NCAA tournament two years ago. I walk in, Florida State is playing. Guess what? I didn't have to know who they were playing because all I heard was UVM, UVM, UVM. The Vermont Catamount fans are a great fan base. Vermont, you land in my number five spot of craziest fan bases. A little bit off the map, but I'm going to give the Catamounts some love. I tell you what, you nailed that like a split hog. I I, I went uh, with some more. Uh, I went blue bloods. I went blue bloods. So like, I, I will say this: the first time I ever went to the SEC tournament, I think I was fourteen or fifteen years old. My father took me. We went up, and spent a couple of days, and and uh, I will say this: it turns into the Kentucky invitation because even in games that are not affiliated with Kentucky, even in the morning games when Kentucky's not playing, the entire stadium's blue. It's incredible. Their fan support, just a sheer number. So I got to give them, uh, I got to give them credit there. I did some, I did this more of like a superlative type deal because it's impossible to like go one, two, three, four, five, even though Fanta years were fantastic. But most intelligent fan bases, I'm going to split between Indiana and Purdue. These guys know what they're talking about. When you talk basketball, Indiana and Purdue both know what they're talking about, and they all hate Goodman, every one of them. So they got to know what they're talking about. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love Jeff. But you get what I'm saying. Like, these guys know basketball. The people from the state of Indiana know basketball. Purdue people especially, like, these guys understand the ins and outs, and they appreciate good basketball, even if it's slower-tempo basketball. So I'm going Indiana-Purdue. Uh, most excited, I'm not – in this fan base, this next fan, they're so excited, and they don't really know that they're supposed to be excited, but they just know that it's awesome and everything's going well right now. Arkansas. They're like, what am I doing here? I'm feeling great about things. Arkansas, they have been super excited. They're super active online. The fan base is nuts. This whole pig suey stuff. I've never been there. I got to get out. I got to get out there. I got to go watch a game at Arkansas. Uh, I'm going to call out Duke fans because everybody claims to be a Duke fan, but nobody actually went to Duke. You just kind of inherited Duke. I don't know how you inherited it because nobody actually goes to Duke. They've only got 6,000 people in their undergrad program. So you didn't go to Duke. Don't be a Duke fan. Stop all this nonsense. Florida State, I'm giving them credit because whenever I was playing, it was the only school in the ACC that served alcohol on the premises. And there were a couple of fans that broke out. So I'm giving them, there might be the most obnoxious ones that I played against in person. There are my, I actually turned it into six schools, but there are my uh, fan base superlatives right there. All right. So uh, I did, I went a little bit differently than just the top five craziest fan bases i want the ones that drive me the most crazy online so <laughs> there's a lot i'm gonna go i'm gonna go from five to one i'm gonna start with number five and that's that's vcu fans it's kind of tapered off a little bit uh but for a while there vcu fans were just on me because at one point uh, i wrote a column where i said that I, I think vcu is kind of what they are right now when they're running havoc is kind of th- this is what they're going to end up being it was i mean they lost a couple years uh in a row in, in top 32 and it's just i I don't think that you can win at the highest, highest level playing a pressing style uh, system. And so they did not like me for that. And for, uh, for probably the next five to six years, every time they got a big win, I would get in my mentions, VCU fans saying VCU has peaked. And well, I think that that column has held up pretty well, guys. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know. I don't see VCU making any more final four. So uh, number four on my list, San Diego state fans, right? Really? Yes. Oh, they're insane. They drive me crazy. 
And it's all because when they had Malachi Flynn, I didn't rank them like number two. Remember how they they had that long run where they were undefeated? I had them ranked like fifth. I was like, I'm not just – I said it at the beginning of the year. I said, San Diego State is going to make a long run undefeated. Just because they're beating Fresno State, I'm not going to bump them over teams I think are better just because they don't play anybody in their league anywhere near as good as like a Duke or a Kentucky or any of these other power conference teams. And San Diego State fans were not happy with that. And I still get them popping up in my mentions reminding me about it. It just, they drive me crazy. Um, Number three on my list, Virginia fans, right? I've gotten gotten to the point where I think me and Virginia fans are cool. But for a while, those one, anybody that graduated from Virginia thinks they're the smartest person on the planet. Oh, let's go. Let's get personal. Let's get personal. Virginia is the Michigan of the ACC. Oh, as my guy Christian Hackenberg said on our Field of 12 After Dark show last week, Michigan thinks they're the Harvard of the Big Ten. They kind of have this ego to think they're better than everyone. I think that Virginia fans kind of have a little bit of that complex. And when you combine that with the fact that they played a uh, less than uh, aesthetically appeasing style of basketball while also winning a lot, it kind of gave them a complex. It was like anybody says something – that can be moderately assumed as negative of Virginia, they swarm and they attack. There are 783 billion Twitter accounts. right now. I, I did the math. 783 billion Twitter accounts that have the name of a city and who in it, right? So you got Atlanta who, Seattle who, uh, Baltimore who, you got Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Every single person that ever went to Virginia has a Twitter account with the name of a city and who in it. And if you say anything moderately negative about Virginia, they just pounce and they attack and they, they drive me crazy. All right. Number two on my list, NC State fans. NC State fans are kind of similar to – well, I I mean, look, they still think that they are in the same conversation as Duke and North Carolina because you won a national title in 38 years ago. (laughs) They're they're, they're the angry youngest brother. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, and here's the thing. They're freaking passionate. I agree with you, Dad. I'm not oh, thinking you're I, look, gosh, they're good. Look, they they pack that place out. They are loud. They are passionate. They go after mm-hmm. you. But like, come on, you're NC State. Like, just okay. Let, let's let's be happy when you guys like. If you get to the second <laughs> weekend, congratulations. That's a great season for you. You're NC State. You know. So yeah, they get after me a lot. Number one on my list. Do you, do you guys know who it is? The Wisconsin Badgers. Ooh. He's not a fan. Not a fan. All I'm going to say is sup. That's all I got to say. What's up, guys? What's going on? How's Wisconsin doing right now? They got so mad at me, so mad at me when I did not rank Wisconsin as the best team in the Big Ten coming off of winning the 2020 regular season, right? How'd that go for you guys? Anybody know? Not great, right? It didn't go well. That's all I got to say. Sup, Wisconsin fans. All right, guys. This was a great podcast. Uh, As always, please, if you're still listening to this, subscribe. uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere that you listen to podcasts for absolutely free. Please hit that subscribe button. Hit that like button. Hit that share button. Do all of those things that make us happy as podcasters. For John Fanta, for Terrence Oglesby, I'm Rob Doster. See you guys again next week.